You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Thursday, August 6, 2020, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington in New York, joined shortly by David Bonson, founder and managing partner of the Bonson Group. But first, Jack Farley is back with the introduction. Thanks, Ash. The initial claims numbers came in today, just shy of 1.2 million, a decrease of almost a quarter million from the prior week. But the labor market is still in profound turmoil, as this marks the 20th week in a row that initial claims exceeded 695,000, which prior to the pandemic had been the record. In other news, the Turkish lira is in free fall today, with the dollar lira bursting past the 7 level. It now stands at 7.25. This is a record low for the lira. Due to this extreme price action, today is now the most volatile day the dollar lira has had since August 2018. You could see the lira flashing warning signals on Monday night when the overnight forward implied yield on the Turkish lira went into hyperspace, soaring to over a thousand percent as a freeze on lira liquidity caused anguish for foreign investors caught on the wrong side of the carry trade. This was the result of the intentional efforts of the Turkish government and the Central Bank of Turkey, which have prevented Turkish banks from selling or lending lira to foreign investors. So that's why foreigners had to borrow lira in the offshore market, hence the massive short squeeze. Deeply negative real rates and a compounding trade deficit have been alarming investors in Turkey for some time now, causing economists to recommend rate hikes as a solution. This proposal has been met with tremendous backlash from the Erdogan administration, as the president remains committed to pumping cheap credit into the Turkish economy, particularly at a time when the nation of 82 million has seen its revenues from tourism vanish into thin air due to the coronavirus. As mayhem unfolds in the currency market, pressure mounts from the international community on the central bank of Turkey, and particularly its leader, Governor Murat Oysal to raise interest rates. But for those of you who are hoping Governor Oysel will turn out to be the Paul Volcker of the Anatolian Peninsula, you might want to recall that Oysel's predecessor, Governor Çetinkaya, was abruptly fired by Erdogan for not being sufficiently dovish. Because the Central Bank of Turkey hasn't raised rates, it's been forced to sell its dwindling supply of FX reserves in order to prop up the exchange rate, exacerbating concerns about the lira's future. You see, the CBRT has been replenishing its reserves via short-term swaps with commercial banks. This recycling of dollars via the commercial banks depends on the trust of Turkish depositors. But now, with this major break in the dam today, it could be a signal that this scheme of propping up the lira via FX swaps could not be sustainable. So it's certainly going to be an interesting few months ahead for the Turkish lira. If you want more detail on this, check out the work that we've been doing on the Real Vision blog. I'll post a link in the comments. Back to you, Ash. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Thanks, Jack. Welcome, David. Well, good to be with you. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you. You know, David, we've done two of these interviews before. This is my first time sharing the screen with you, and I'm very excited about it. 
Yes, yeah. So I'll, although I look forward to doing another one in person again. I, I can't wait until we're all back in the studio in person. So, David, so much to talk about here. I've been following your work very closely. Um, you know, one of the things that I really admire is that you're an analyst, you're a commentator, you look at what's going on politically, economically, in the markets, but you always begin with the data. So let's talk a little bit about where we are right now. You know, one of the stories uh, that we've been talking about on Real Vision, and I know that you've been thinking about and writing about, uh, is current state of U.S. GDP and the reporting standards. You know, this was reported as basically a 33% drop uh, in GDP. In fact, it was a 9.5% quarterly drop. But these numbers are reported on a seasonally adjusted annualized basis, uh, which changed the reporting basis. Tell us what you think when you look at that number uh, and how you think about it. Yeah, it's interesting because generally speaking, throughout the COVID era, I've tried to make the point that what numbers we're getting are the least important because we already know that the entire economy shut down and everything's awful and all debate, all conversation, and really everything that's going to be pertinent to where we go is going to be a forward data point. The debate about V-shape versus W-shape and all of those things about recovery is far more important than this perpetual flow of data showing that, oh, when they shut down the economy, the economy wasn't doing well. Yet, I got drawn into the conversation because of what I've considered to be misreporting. The fact of the matter is 33 or 36 or 31 are all the same thing. They're this horrible number that reflects accurately something that we've never seen, the, the kind of shock and awe of what took place at the peak of the COVID moment and of the shutdown that went there with. The reason why I think you and I are talking about it right now is because the economy did not contract 33%. It contracted, as you point out, something closer to nine, and it gets annualized in the way we talk about it. And that's fine. When we are used to saying that the economy was up 3%, we only mean 0.75. So it's okay if we're being consistent with it. The challenge is that it paints a picture in the, with the gravity of this data as if a third of the US economy went away, which of course is just preposterous. In fact, it becomes even more difficult when you go into a contrast in the recovery, because I'm quite certain then we are not gonna be annualizing the recovery number. Nobody, let's say we get a five, six or 7% print for Q3, no one's gonna be talking like the economy grew 20, 25 or 30. So it may seem like semantics and it may seem like data geek kind of stuff for guys like you and me, but I think it's very important because it paints a totally different picture of what's going on in economic life in America. Yeah, I think that's spot on. It's so easy to get lost in the weeds sometimes with these numbers, but what you point out is absolutely correct. Look, we've shut down the economy. We know the number is going to be terrible. Is it 31% on an annualized basis? Is it 37%? Does it really matter? We know that uh, We know that where we stand, uh, but it's such an important point to stress. It's gotta be about reporting apples to apples and not apples to oranges. We've seen some comparisons with other countries. I think there was a, a report coming out of Sweden uh, saying that you know Sweden was growing at four times or five times the rate of the US, simply not the case. It's reporting basis error. That's right. And, and I guess in a, a general sense, apples to apples is always important. 
But right now, you not only have comparative significance in getting it done right, but there's a narrative that becomes substantially different. If one quarter were at 2% and the next quarter were 2.2 annualized, the, the fact that we report annually uh, annualized data is not that big of a deal. But when you start talking with large numbers and, and the effect of a swing down and swing up, it can get very misstated. And in fact, in this case, even if it was done apples to apples, it would be misstated. It's just that it would be misstated consistently twice. <laughs> Yes, well said. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk a little bit more broadly. You've been a, a passionate advocate for the reopening. You wrote an, uh, an op-ed piece in the New York Post talking about reopening New York City. And you had a very interesting argument about how it's not just uh, getting people back to offices because we, some of us who are able to do the things that we do virtually are functioning quite well, but it's all the ancillary impact on the economy. Uh, and, uh, and that has a significant impact on life in this city. Yeah, it's a very important uh, deal to me, and I, I think that it is primarily an urban issue. I don't think that that particular argument I make for people going back to their offices, those of us in white-collar jobs, is as compelling in a suburban environment, although I'm sure that there is some element, but it's particular to Manhattan, which, of course, is my home and where where I live over half the time and where one of my company's offices is. And we're all, we all understand that Manhattan is a lifestyle. It's not just a place, it's an ecosystem. And there's an economic ecosystem that feeds off of itself. Everybody going to work means that everyone needs to eat lunch. And everybody eating lunch means that they're going into their office. And if the gyms are open, it makes it more likely that the offices will want to be open. And if the offices are open, it makes it more in need that the gyms be open and, and so forth and so on. Well, in all of that, what you might kind of call a description of Adam Smith's invisible hand of the markets, the people who are really struggling when one of the dominoes gets taken out, which is the white collar employees at the trading desks and in the kind of finance centers or whatever the case may be. By the way, you could apply it to the big law firms as well. They take up a lot of the square footage of skyscraper real estate in Manhattan. When those people are working remotely, it's downstream that you take out a significant amount of economic activity. The delis, the coffee shops, the bagel shops, the um, as unfortunately I know too well, the donut shops, um, you know, the happy hours as people are getting back to Grand Central to grab a drink on their way back to Connecticut or wherever they may live. All of those things have a disproportionate impact to lower income tiers in society. And so we're sitting here talking so much about some of the kind of social responsibility. And yet, to me, we have the capacity in New York and other places with very well-resourced organizations to very safely reopen all of the CDC guidelines can be adhered to. The data points in New York right now look like a small town in South Dakota in terms of where their COVID, and, I, and that's a great thing. I think we should be grateful for that. But then once they've gotten to this point with the health data, and now I believe we actually have a bigger responsibility, not just to our own businesses, but to the businesses around us that are so dependent on there being economic life back in the great city of New York.
Yeah. You know, the counter argument, David, of course, that's presented is that, you know, we've been able to achieve these uh, this great flattening of the curve here in New York City and elsewhere uh, by the draconian methods that we've put in place by restricting access, by keeping people at home. How do you think about how to strike that balance uh, between containment uh, on the one hand and the economic lifeblood of the country on the other? Well, it's a great it's a great uh, issue for us to discuss. I don't happen to agree with the premise at all, but I'm very willing to pretend that I do. Okay. <laughs> how do you so, think about it first then? How, how do you think about that question? Well, I look at Stockholm, Sweden right now, and I see identical data to New York City. Um, cases have disappeared. Hospitalizations are, are very, very low. Mortalities are very low. And whether we're talking about Stockholm or New York City, uh, everyone should be very grateful. We all want healthy people and we don't want any more tragic loss of life. Yet Sweden didn't shut down. And so I think that the um, cause and effect assumption that the, the draconian shutdown was the sole reason for it there's two problems with that. A, it doesn't account for the places that also did draconian shutdowns and haven't seen their data get better. And it doesn't account for the places that didn't do draconian shutdowns and have seen much better data. So I think that we're gonna learn a lot more. I don't have a, a conspiratorial view about it. I don't have a political view here. I'm just saying empirically, there are um, data points that would serve as a counterfactual. Now, let's pretend, though, that there are a lot of we certainly agree that vigilance has helped. Right. Behavioral vigilance is very important. And and whether it's particularly a shutdown or just greater focus on hygiene, on mask wearing, on plexiglass, on distancing, more or less, it strikes me as somewhat unbelievable that uh, a focus on lower capacity, lower density within restaurants, greater focus on hand sanitizer and hand washing, uh, mask wearing, all of those things put together would not represent the greatest contribution to um, continued mitigation. But let's say someone just simply said, sorry, that it isn't foolproof enough. I don't think anyone should be forced to go to the restaurants. I don't think anyone should be forced to leave their home. All we are talking about here is mitigation because that's all we can do, Ash. We don't have the ability to eliminate all car accidents from the freeway, but we have to drive. And I think that logic that we've all lived with in our airplane decisions and freeway decisions and any number of other aspects of our day-to-day uh, -day lives, that mentality has to be applied to um, how we come out of this COVID era as well. When you look then to the specific application you and I are discussing about office life, um, I actually made the argument that if there's any place that can safely be reopened, it is the white collar offices of the big businesses of New York City where there are unlimited resources for distancing, for elevator management, for um, reconfiguration of the office, of the furniture, of the cubicles for providing um, gloves and, and plexiglass and sanitizer, you, you get my point. Yeah. So is it foolproof? Of course not, but, but nothing is going to be foolproof. And the sooner we all accept that, the better it's going to be. You know, the words that struck me there were COVID era. You know, I think when we first were dealing with this problem in April and May, uh, and certainly in March, there was the feeling that this was an acute crisis and we needed all hands on deck and we needed everything we could possibly do to flatten that curve. But I think the realization has begun 
to dawn, and it's probably something the medical community has understood for a long time, but the realization has begun to dawn on the rest of us that this is not a six-month problem. And if this is a two-year problem or an 18-month problem or, God forbid, a three-year problem, how do you deal with that? How do you cope with getting back life to normal? How do you survive uh, in, in an era where you just can't stay locked in your house indefinitely for years on end? Well, I think, first of all, we have to have some degree of gratitude for the fact that what this perpetual and very serious problem is, is one with an incredibly low mortality rate for people that are uh, below a certain age and that lack a comorbidity. Right. And, and frankly, when I look at some of the data of the Spanish flu in 1918, it's horrifying. And as a father of three kids, it's frankly incomprehensible at the distribution of lethality then versus now, where essentially coronavirus was not something that took the lives of children at all. Yes. And the Spanish flu was almost completely concentrated on people, on infants, toddlers, all the way up to people up to age 20. And so we do have a very serious viral pandemic that is highly infectious in COVID-19 that is some going to end up being somewhere around a 99.7% survival rate. Thank God. Yeah. However, to the seriousness of how we live and function in society with a very infectious disease, the answer is going to be through greater vigilance on hygiene, the things we can control. And at the point that we develop an immunity, either from herd immunity or from a vaccinated immunity, at that point, we'll be able to uh, regather in large you know, um, gatherings again. I think yeah. that that will be the longest standing sacrifice until there is that immunity effect of us all going to uh, sporting events and concerts and so forth is probably yeah. going to be on hold for a while. But the most day-to-day -day things I think can be and should be and need to be restored now. Yeah, and of course, we can continue to isolate the most vulnerable populations. We talk about the elderly, uh, who obviously are not of working age. Uh, there's a substantial percentage of them, at least, who are not of working age, and we can continue to isolate them. You know, our remit here on Real Vision Daily Briefing, of course, is to talk about the economy. Uh, and uh, look, I always get flack uh, on occasion for, for talking about COVID, but unfortunately, there's simply no way to talk about the economy without addressing these issues. I said uh, yesterday on the show uh, that talking about, uh, you know, not talking about COVID is like not talking about the war in 1941. There's just no way to, to talk about the economic base, the productivity of the United States without talking about it. So with that said- Do you mind if I inter interject? I would even argue that a better analogy than 1941, where a good portion of the people listening right now were not alive then, is 9-11. Yeah. where, of course, most of us are contemporaries of what took place on 9-11, and it happens to share a disproportionate impact to the big city of New York, connection to financial markets. The reality is that I think a lot of the um, sensations we went through as a society after 9-11 are much like we're going through now, the uncertainty, the lack of clarity, how long could it last? Where Are we gonna be living with a perpetual fear of more attacks? And then the way in which normalization was allowed to happen organically in the society, nobody put out a memo saying, now you can go back to the airport. People just slowly be 
became more comfortable with resumption of normal activities. And I agree with you completely. It's impossible to talk about that. Um, it's impossible to not talk about that if we're going to have a serious conversation about the economy and the market. Exactly. You know, and that leads in very nicely. You wrote a piece in the National Review about the stimulus package, and you expressed some concerns about the dominant prevailing Keynesian or neo-Keynesian uh, framework of fiscal support to offset economic contractions. You talked about the risks of long-term indebtedness, but you also had some favorable things to say about the PPP, the Payroll Protection Program. Uh, and I'm curious how you're thinking about that right now. Yeah, my point was that if we're going to grade on the curve as as trying to apply a non-ideological test to uh, fiscal interventions, so I'm sort of moving past the point of whether or not there should have been any at all and, and the kind of Keynesian and non-Keynesian approach to things, just within the um, art of reality, the fact that we were going to do something and we did it, what worked and what didn't, on a relative basis, I don't think very many people can deny that PPP struck a higher multiplier effect in its impact to the economy and to jobs than a lot of other components of the CARES Act did. Right. And so as we go forward, of all of the different policy prescriptions that they're presently debating, incorporating into yet another stimulus bill, it seems to me that things that go straight to the heart of A, productivity, and B, those whose productivity was cut off. Whereas indiscriminate distribution of funds, regardless of whether or not there was a um, threat to productive economic activity, I think is very wasteful. And within the PPP program, I understand there's certain outliers and people didn't like that this company got some money or, or this company didn't get it quick enough. But look, there was hundreds of billions of dollars and millions of loans from thousands of banks that all got out in two to three weeks time. Okay. I mean, if you or I just go to refinance our home mortgage, one person with one bank, it takes 30 days. And we were able to get hundreds of billions of dollars out in a matter of two to three weeks. So I do think overall it, it was a reasonably efficient program, and I think we're continuing to see that it got into the hands of those who were able to preserve payrolls. Now, they've had to make adjustments, but that's actually another tribute to the program. There were some things that were a little broken. The formula is too stringent at 75% payroll instead of 60. Eight weeks ended up not being adequate time, so they extended right. it to 24 weeks. They, they did what, what business owners do. They make they call an audible and make an adjustment, and that's what they did. And so I feel like the PPP should be thought of as a reasonably successful program, certainly at least compared to most government programs. Yeah, and uh, one of the few programs that's really a, had an impact on the lifeblood of the American economy is small yeah. business. Uh, yeah. Very much so. And the only thing I would add is – if they could do it over again, or if in fact they do do it over again with an additional stimulus bill, I think something that is PPP-like that is particularly targeted to the leisure, hospitality, food, beverage areas of the economy, those are the areas where clearly um, there is the most gaping need for some stimulative intervention. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting on the on the flip side of the coin, when you look at what's been happening, uh, you know, there's this this shift and we've been talking about it on this show, this bifurcation of the U.S. economy. You know, Microsoft uh, closed the day at uh, 215 market cap, one point six trillion dollars. Apple, 454, one point nine four trillion dollar market capitalization. There's been this tremendous shift this bifurcation uh, where mom and pop small businesses, even medium sized businesses have really taken it on the chin here. And there's been this massive growth uh, for tech companies, for big cap tech companies, especially that are enabling us to do the thing that we're doing right now, uh, you know, a video conference uh, over Skype, these kinds of, uh, of shifts in the US economy. And this is precisely the type of imbalance that PPP is intended to address. I agree. And I think that that um, with what we knew at the end of March, when they were going about um, uh, adjudicating what CARES Act would look like, I think there was a sincere belief, not only from the legislators and from the White House, but even from the, all of us at home, that the lockdown was going to last two, three weeks, that there would be a, a tail effect to the impact. But I don't think anyone really believed it would last as long as it did. And so the um, need to address those types of businesses that you're referencing that clearly don't have access to capital markets and yet have a strong desire to keep their payrolls together and, and give some flexibility and nuance around it uh, to customize where it needs to be customized, I think will prove to be very stimulative. And I'm quite confident that the reason the jobs numbers, as bad as they are, are not much worse is because of the PPP program. Yeah, you know, and that brings us, David, full circle back to uh, to capital markets and U.S. equity markets. You know, right now, uh, S and P 500 closed out the day at 3349. Uh, we're off about 1.5 percent, less than 1.5 percent, 1.3 percent from the all-time uh, high on 19 February 2020. Intraday, 3393. What's your take on U.S. equity markets? Well, let's start with exactly that, the S&P 500. I recall um, in the midst of the COVID uh, uh, era's launch in March, in the peak of the market distress, reading a report, and I want to say it was from JP Morgan, calling for a 3,400 S&P by Q1 of 2021, and essentially arguing we'd get back to a new high because of the stimulus, because of all the programs that were going to come about. And of course, a re-rating around risk assets in light of monetary stimulus. And I remember thinking that sounds pretty optimistic, yet doable. And now here we are in July, and we're essentially um, on the door of those numbers. Now, I don't want to pour water on it, because it is legit, and the numbers are what they are. And if anyone has been invested in the cap-weighted S&P all the way through, those are the results of their portfolio. But the delta between an even-weighted and a cap-weighted S&P is so dramatic yeah. that I think it's useful for us to look at not just what the S&P has done, where five companies are up 39% and 495 companies are down 6%, okay? So you end up getting an S&P that's up 1% and it's five companies carrying the load and then some for the entire index. 
the average stock in the market is not up nearly as much as the index itself. And there's nothing contradictory or clever or tricky about that. It's just purely the math of the cap weighted distortions. Yeah, those big cap tech stocks pull off that index to the upside uh, and really mask the stasis happening in some of the other names on the index. And I think that the Dow, to its credit, has Apple and Microsoft in, in its uh, constituents. So no one can say it doesn't have exposure to mainline technology. And yet it certainly is a more diversified and, it, and its price impacts reflect, I think, the cross-pollination of sectors in the American economy better. And then when you look at the Dow and you see it still kind of near 10% off of its all-time highs, um, that sounds a little bit more realistic to the experience most investors are having versus uh, what the S&P cap-weighted story is telling. Yeah, Dow closed today, uh, 27,386, up 0.68%. You know, and some of it, David, is just there simply is no single perfect metric. We talked about this yesterday yeah. with the Apple four-for-one split. Uh, Apple is no longer the largest uh, component of the Dow because it's price-weighted and not cap-weighted. So you see something that doesn't really have any economic impact dramatically reducing Apple's uh, Apple's the way it's counted in the index. This is why we look at more than one index and why we think about uh, this more holistically and broadly. But it does sort of beget the question, look, you know, we talked about GDP number at the open of the show, uh, whether you look at it on an annualized basis, whether you look on it on a quarterly basis, it was still a dismal number, nine and a half percent Q2 decline uh, is is absolutely brutal. We don't see numbers like that. That's not within the parameters of what typically happens even during significant recessions. You have then uh, the S&P 500, the broadest and most widely sort, uh, quoted uh, source of, uh, of, of a metric for measuring stock market performance, and it's only off 1.3%. There's clearly a disconnect there, no matter how you slice it. That's right. And so that subject of the disconnect between the S&P and GDP is one that um, needs to be discussed and needs to be better understood, particularly for long-term investors who want to avoid making a mistake that um, could be made over and over again. It is true that there is a distortion and a, a sort of exacerbation of this dynamic because of big tech, cap-weighted realities, and because of market multiples being boosted by monetary stimulus. However, it's an eternal principle that GDP looks backward and the stock market looks forward. Right. So if we go back to, it's not, it's not really that complicated. It's just that th that simplicity is being exacerbated by those other two um, dynamics that I mentioned, big tech and the Fed. But if you go back to March of 2009 and the uh, market's bottoming out at a, a roughly 6,000 in the Dow and then the 20 5% move higher um, on the year in the market. Look, the economy was awful for all of 2009. There was no debate about V-shape or W-shape. We had gone way, way down, and we were staying down. It was far more of a structural problem, far more of a secular contraction. And um, right now, at least we're debating about whether or not we're going to have a violent recovery in Q3 or Q4. But no one's really debating that once people go outside again and are going out to restaurants and so forth, there's going to be an awful lot of economic vitality that comes back into the market. 
I also believe that the strength of the economy at the starting point of COVID cannot be understated. If you were having GDP numbers of zero to one percent and unemployment of six to eight percent to start, it would be a completely different landscape than starting with a GDP number that was two and a half to three and uh, unemployment number that was three to four. And yet NPER suggests that we entered recession in the U.S. in February of 2020 prior to the significant uh, COVID impact in the U.S., at least the stated COVID impact in the U.S. Yeah, no, I think that what that's a reference to, though, is the seasonal dynamic um, of you always have a GDP number that prints lower in Q1. And you can go back to through several of the Obama years in which you ended up with about a 2% real number on the year. Uh, Q1 always had a a contraction. What's unique in this case is that the seasonal component of Q1 coming post-holidays was then immediately bookended by the COVID dynamics. So seasonality, cyclicality, and then the secular trend of COVID. That's right. That's right. And the shock and awe of that COVID moment. But uh, no, I think that the... um, Understanding of markets as discounting mechanisms is something that even very sophisticated or at least very wealthy investors often forget. And I don't blame them. I think human nature is what it is. It's very difficult to reconcile the the print and GDP, the unemployment data, and just going outside and seeing you know entire cities and shopping malls that are empty and yet seeing stock prices that are higher than where they were when it started or the same as they were or what have you. And yet what, of course, the markets are doing is looking forward and discounting earnings into uh, the present. And they're doing that with a rating or evaluation that is much higher than it was before as trillions of dollars of liquidity and a very compressed interest rate borrowing rate environment is going to be a huge boost to earnings. Um, none of this is being said for, with, through a social lens. I'm saying it purely through a very crass economic lens, but that's what I'm on the show to do. Right. Look, some of the jobs are not coming back right away, if at all, and that's going to boost corporate profitability. Right. There's always slack that gets eliminated, and even though those jobs are gone, and that may is going to be clearly very unfortunate for those individuals and households, but from a pure corporate earnings standpoint, there's going to be a greater productivity as for a period of time, companies operate leaner and meaner. And we saw that out of 2009, where um, companies post-crisis were able to operate very lean and mean for several years, which is one of the reasons it took all the way to 2012 and 13 before the unemployment picture actually started to meaningfully improve. But at that point, the stock market was up over 100%. You know what's, what's interesting also, we're looking at rising U.S. equity markets, but also rising gold prices, gold over 2000 right now, getting close to its inflation-adjusted high from 1980, uh, its its all-time high in nominal dollars. These are pretty striking numbers. First of all, gold's not anywhere near its inflation-adjusted high from 1980. Um, that, that would require another $1,000 to get there. And so I use that point a lot to argue against gold as a regular inflation hedge 
Um, it may you could argue historically it's functioned as a hyperinflation hedge, but the kind of regular inflation we've had over a 40-year generation, um, gold is still meaningfully disconnected from that level. But when you say it's interesting, I suspect what you mean is that it seems counterintuitive that stocks would be going higher and gold would be going higher. And there is a sense in which we're sort of trained to think about gold as kind of a hedge against bad things and stocks going higher reflecting good things. But what's really interesting about gold is that it's actually very non-correlated. And I don't mean that it's positively or negatively correlated. Right. I mean non-correlated. There's been a lot of times that gold was going higher. 2003 to 2007 is a great example. Stocks went up 100% in between the bottom of the dot-com bust and the beginning of the financial crisis. And in that same time period, gold went up quite a bit along with it. So unfortunately, there's not a correlation we can speak to that explains it. Um, and, and back in March, stocks were obviously crashing, but gold wasn't going up either. And people were saying, I wonder why gold's not going higher and I think that speaks to the dynamic of correlations during periods of hyper distress always going way up as people sell what they have to sell. Uh, ultimately, most people you talk to that are buying gold, particularly larger, more sophisticated investors, are doing it in some response to central bank insanity. And I think that's the reason why one would want to do buy something that doesn't have any internal rate of return. Uh, although I'm unpersuaded that gold is a great hedge against central bank insanity. And the reason I say that is that up until COVID, I'm not exactly of the opinion that the 2011 to 2020 central banks of the world were not acting insane. We had trillions of dollars of quantitative easing in the ECB and in the Fed and in the BOJ. You had negative interest rates on 16 to 17 trillion dollars of sovereign debt around the world. There was unbelievable monetary experimentation going on well before they went into fifth gear with COVID. And yet gold declined for an entire decade almost. So I wish I had cracked the code as to what makes gold do what it does, but I've never been able to do that. David, there's so much more to talk to you about here. Unfortunately, we're running out of time. Final thoughts. What is your outlook going forward and what are you going to be looking for to confirm your thesis? Well, I'm very much uh, of the opinion that this weakness in the dollar is going to last. I don't think the dollar is going to crash, but I think it's going to let all of the air out of the tire that it brought in since 2014 and 15. The dollar's 5 to 7% trade-weighted correction so far is really not that significant compared to the 20-25% appreciation it went through in the last five years. So that speaks to the opportunity in emerging markets. It takes away a, tail, uh, excuse me, a headwind that a lot of emerging markets equity investors have been struggling with. And it gives an opportunity to some of the multinationals, uh, some consumer staples companies, things of that nature that have been really held back from a profitability standpoint by a currency impact. But to the broader question as to what our um, large macro view going forward is, I believe whether it's in a month or eight months, there is a sector rotation, a leadership rotation coming that will be one for the ages. 
as profound as the early 2000s? Um, what sectors will be the beneficiaries of new leadership remains to be seen. Uh, we know that coming out of dot-com, technology took a huge step back and the financials became the great leaders uh, going into um, the, in, until they blew up with the financial crisis. Uh, energy had a huge moment in the sun at the first few years post-financial crisis with fracking and some of those things. I don't know exactly what the new leadership group will be, and I'm not just making the simplistic argument for value over growth, but what I am stating is that I have no doubt in my mind we're coming to a point at which the fang names that everyone's been relying on are not going to be the leaders of the market, yet I don't think that's bearish for the market. I think it opens up new opportunities. That's where we want to be very nimble and very astute. Value versus growth will be a conversation for another day that we'd love to have. David Bonson, founder and managing partner of the Bonson Group, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.